Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity's true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. How many times have you heard there is no evidence for the Exodus, particularly no evidence for the Exodus in Egypt? That statement, ladies and gentlemen, appears to be demonstrably false. And in fact, I have two guests today that will show you why that statement's false. In fact, they're going to present to you 10 findings, if we can get through all of them here on this program. Uh, most of the findings are from Egypt that the exodus actually did occur. In fact, the evidence points in that direction quite strongly, and you'll see why here in just a minute. My guest is somebody we've had on the program quite a bit. You know Dr. Stephen Meyer, who has his Ph.D. from Cambridge University. He is one of the leaders of the intelligent design movement. But what many people don't know about Steve is that he's also a student of biblical apologetics uh, or, or Christian apologetics and biblical archaeology, and he met a young scholar a number of years ago by the name of Titus Kennedy, who is now a doctor, has his PhD from uh, the University of South Africa in archaeology. And we're going to introduce Titus here in a minute. But I want to start with Steve. Steve, tell us how you met Dr. Kennedy and, and, and how this this interest in the Exodus began. Well, I actually met him on a basketball court when uh, I was a young 40-something faculty member and he was, uh, I think, a senior in high school, and he was dunking over all the old guys on the court. And uh, <laughs> I was sort of impressed with his skills, and we got talking afterwards. And I asked him uh, where he went to high school, and he told me. And I asked him where he wanted to go to college and what he wanted to do. He said he wanted to major in biblical archaeology. At the time, I was teaching a course at Whitworth University where I was a professor called Reasons for Faith. And the, the course was built around three questions. Does God exist? Is the Bible reliable, and who is Jesus Christ? And in the second section of that course, uh, I always addressed the um, rather extraordinary evidence that had been compiling over the last couple decades and, and even before for the historical reliability of the biblical text from Abraham to Jesus. I'd had a, the opportunity when I was in grad school to make an extended trip to Israel and discovered that there was uh, you know, fascinating evidence for the reliability of the Bible. If you just look at, for example, the the wonderful uh, account or the extraordinary account of Christ's trial, takes up about a half the Gospel of John and a third or more of the Synoptics, and all of the major figures in that trial—Jesus, Pilate, Peter, Herod, and Caiaphas, whose burial crypt was discovered in the early mm -hmm. 1990s. Uh, have been attested by archaeological inscriptions in the last 50 years. And uh, so I, when I went to Israel, I was just kind of blown away by the, the amount of evidence that had been unearthed confirming both the Old and New Testament historical narratives. And uh, so I started teaching some of that stuff because I had students that were very, you know, curious and probing and asking tough questions about whether uh, the Bible was true. And uh, so I ran into Titus and discovered he had this same passionate interest and wanted to go study it formally, so we kept in touch over the years. Later, I did a, a, a series uh, for 
uh, Tyndall Publishers focused on the family and Coldwater Media called True You. That that's was built an around excellent this series. That I, yeah. so, well, thank that, you. And that's uh, an excellent sec- series, Steve. Part, oh, well, okay, I'll let you plug it more. That's great. Thanks. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the first part of it was the question, does God exist? Ten lectures. Second was ten lectures on the historical reliability of the Bible. And uh, by that time, Titus had completed his master's in uh, ancient Near Eastern studies from University of Toronto. And so I hired him to do a fact check on everything I'd been teaching. And we, uh, you know, upgraded the, the, the material in preparation for, for filming and uh, tossed out anything that we couldn't absolutely provenance and added some new things that uh, Titus knew about that had been discovered that provided additional evidence for the reliability of the Bible. So he, he was kind of the behind-the-scenes genius that helped us shape that second series. And then soon he went to do his Ph.D. in, uh, in uh, archaeology, biblical archaeology from University of South Africa. He specifically was focused on the um, evidence for the biblical conquest under Joshua, which, of course, is the complement to the, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the case for the Exodus, because the Exodus has two parts. It's the, the evidence for the Israelites in Israel, or in Egypt, rather, prior to the biblical date for the Exodus event, but then also the evidence for the Israelite entrance into Canaan uh, after the, the, the time period that the Bible specifies that they were in wandering. And it turns out there's very solid evidence on, uh, uh, for both of those aspects of the Exodus, uh, the presence of Israel as slaves in Egypt, and then later their entrance into Canaan. Well, that's actually the first finding. We have 10 findings we want to try and get through on this program. I don't know if we'll get through them all, but the first finding is that the Hebrew slaves were in Egypt about 1700 B.C. And Titus, you have verified some of this uh, through something known as the Brooklyn Papyrus. Can you explain what that is and what what, what that says? Yeah, so Papyrus Brooklyn was found somewhere in southern Egypt, probably around Thebes, which is one of the ancient capitals. And it was just a list of slave names. So in the grand scope of things, not that interesting of a document, but it had on here 37 names that were Semitic. So that's from the language group to which Hebrew belongs. And of those Semitic names, uh, at least nine are biblical Hebrew names. Most that we find in the Bible, one that is not, a biblical name, but it's a, definitely an ancient Hebrew name. So that attests that there were actually people with Hebrew names living in Egypt before the Exodus. And in this case, they were employed as household servants or or used as household servants. So that's one of the major objections is that there's no evidence that Israelites or Hebrews were even in Egypt before the time of the Exodus but we really can't ask for better evidence than an Egyptian document mm. that is giving us all these names of, of Semites that are Hebrew names. And are there other pieces of evidence that would corroborate the fact that there may have been slaves in that area or Canaanite people in that area at that time? Oh, yeah, definitely. So there's a huge amount of evidence for people who had come over from Canaan into Egypt and lived in that Nile Delta area, what the Bible refers to as Goshen or the land of Ramses. So Tel El Daba is a site that's been excavated for decades now. And it was one of the major cities of Egypt uh, called Avaris. And then 
the Ramses later on, uh, the city of Ramses that the Bible refers to. And in this city, the archaeologists there found an immense amount of evidence showing that people from Canaan lived there, people uh, just like the Israelites and those who had come from the same region that they did, according to the pottery that they found there, the types of weapons and tools, the burials, uh, temple architecture for the, the Canaanites that were polytheists. Sheep had even been brought over, a long-haired type of sheep that came from Canaan. And uh, even a couple of statues were found of officials that were sort of like Joseph's situation. Mm -hmm. They were not Egyptians. They were from the Canaan region. They had moved over and then they had risen up through the ranks. And I think you had also mentioned, I saw a, uh, a presentation you did uh, online, uh, which was fascinating on all this. Was there, is there any tomb artwork? I thought you mentioned that regarding Semitic slaves making bricks. Yes. Yeah. It's called the tomb of Rekmirah. He was a vizier under Pharaoh Thutmose III, which was just before the time of the Exodus. And on that tomb, we have all these wall paintings and that artwork shows Semitic slaves making mud bricks and then building buildings with those. So exactly the type of activity that we see in Exodus. Man, why haven't we heard this before, ladies and gentlemen? How many times do you hear people say there's no evidence for the Exodus? Well, we're, we're going through 10 findings with Dr. Stephen Meyer and Dr. Titus Kennedy. They verified all this, and we're going to talk about the other nine when we come back. Don't go away. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. Is there evidence for the exodus in Egypt? Ladies and gentlemen, you've probably heard there isn't, but actually there is. Dr. Stephen Meyer, Dr. Titus Kennedy are here to walk us through 10 findings, most of them from Egypt. And before we get into more specifics, Steve, I want to come back to you. Frame this up for us. Uh, give us the, the view from 30,000 feet here. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's a good, good vantage point to see what really happened. You um, uh, imagine a map. You've got... Uh, Egypt on the, the southern and eastern end of the Mediterranean, and then along the coastline, you go up uh, uh, to Canaan, which is on the very eastern edge of the Mediterranean. And so the, the uh, Israelite slaves, according to the Bible, were in the region of Goshen there, uh, in the Nile Delta, uh, that southeastern end of the, the Med. And somehow they escaped and got and, and entered into Canaan. And what Titus and I developed in, uh, when I taught this uh, lecture series called True You, we had a, a separate lecture on the Exodus and one on the conquest. And I, I call it our A to B argument. We know that the Israelites were in Egypt at point A, time one. Time one is before 1446, the biblical date for the Exodus. You can calculate from the biblical text in a couple of different ways. And Titus was just talking about the evidence for the presence of Israelite slaves 
in Egypt prior to that time. So we know we can put a we can put a dot on the map. In fact, a mm-hmm. bunch of X's on the map in Egypt at that time period. But then we have extensive evidence of the entrance of Israelites into Canaan at point B uh, and time two. Time, point B is Canaan on that uh, very um, eastern edge of the Mediterranean. Uh, sorry, very western edge of the Mediterranean. And then we've got um, uh, extensive evidence of their entrance there after about 1400, 1410 BC. So we know they were in Egypt as slaves. We know they got into Canaan as a conquering people and were no longer slaves. Therefore, there had to be an exodus. It's a simple mm-hmm. deduction from those two key classes of evidence. Titus will, of course, share some more about the evidence for their entrance into Canaan. And interestingly, um, in, because of a, a, a fascinating expedition he took into northern Sudan, which was very southern Egypt in biblical times, uh, he's also verified the, uh, an, an extraordinary inscription describing the movement of the Israelites through Moab and Edom during the wandering period. So we know they were in Egypt at time one, point A. They got to Canaan at time two, point B. And we can even track them along the way with extra-biblical archaeological findings. So it's a, it's a kind of a fascinating case, and it's very simple. They got from A to B at the right time. Mm. That in was fact, we're, In fact, we're going to look at that uh, expedition that Titus took into Sudan here a little bit later. That's one of, one of the findings that uh, he has found. But let me just go to finding number two. Finding number one is we know they were in Egypt uh, prior to 1446 B.C. Finding number two, you may have mentioned already, um, Titus, Pharaoh's palace found on the Nile. What else was found there? Uh, they found these large storage silos when they were excavating Avaris or the city of Ramses. And that seems to fit exactly with what we read about Exodus 1, saying that the Israelites were forced to build these large storage facilities for Pharaoh at mm. Ramses and Pithom, and then the, the Septuagint adds Heliopolis. And it's right at the time before the Exodus. So it seems to be corroborating that construction project. And uh, Steve, you had mentioned, uh, which is finding number three on our list here, that the Old Testament dates the Exodus to 1446 B.C. How so? Well, there's, there is a calculation you can make. It's in 1 Kings. It tells mm-hmm. us that, uh, that the Exodus occurred a certain number of years before the, um, the, uh, the time of Solomon. And mm-hmm. so you can just simply back-calculate. And there's a couple of other methods as well. So what scholars have typically done is they've, they've just assumed that if the Exodus happened, it happened much later. Uh, and this came, this was, there's, a, there's a complicated story behind this, but uh, there was a misdating of Jericho by an by a, um, archaeologist in the 1950s named Kathleen Kenyon, and a kind mm-hmm. of scholarly consensus built up around that. And so the, the consensus has been either that the Exodus didn't occur, or if it did occur, happened around 1200 B.C., mm. and scholars have looked for evidence, archaeologists have looked for evidence of the Exodus in that time period. They don't find any, but the, the, uh, the biblically-derived um, dates actually put the Exodus much earlier. So if you're going to test the reliability of the Bible, you really need to test it against its own account, not against what you presume it meant based on a scholarly consensus that developed <laughs> for reasons 
that had to do mainly with skepticism about the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, friends, if you're keeping score at home, as, as, as Steve mentioned, First Kings six one will help you. You can also look at Judges eleven twenty six. And also 1 Chronicles 6 shows there's 19 generations from the time of Moses to Solomon. All those will put the Exodus in the 1400s B.C., not the 1200s B.C. So if scholars are saying there's no evidence for the uh, Exodus, it might. One reason might be they're looking at the wrong time period. They're about 200 years old. Looking at the wrong time, looking in the wrong place. Exactly. I I forget the exact numbers right offhand, but I think it's 480 years uh, from... Uh, 976 BC. You, you mm-hmm. back, you back calculate. I think so. Yeah. All right. So finding number four. Right four. What's that? Yeah. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you back calculate, and you get a very precise date, and uh-huh. it's before that time that we should be looking for an Israelite presence in, in Egypt. If you look around 1200, they would have already been gone. Okay. Right. Let's go to finding number four, Titus, uh, because you've established, and I guess other scholars too, that. Amenhotep II was the pharaoh in 1446. Tell us a little bit about him. He was the son of this very famous and powerful pharaoh named Thutmose III. And he rose to power about 1450 BC. And then the Exodus, we have that biblical date in 1446. So just looking at chronology, it would place him in there. But there are also a number of pieces of circumstantial evidence that show us that Amenhotep II fits as the Exodus Pharaoh too. First of all, if you just look at his character, he seems really bullheaded and arrogant in the Exodus narrative. And that's exactly what we get from reading his own texts about himself. Hmm. He made outlandish claims, and that's typically thought of by scholars as he's just trying to show his deity or his association with the gods and that he is such a great pharaoh and everyone should revere him and and worship him and follow him but they don't expect all those things actually happened we also see that during his reign there was a massive change in the military power of egypt it sort of disappears the previous pharaoh had led at least 17 major military campaigns and then Amenhotep II, he leads one at the beginning of his reign. And then after the Exodus, he leads this slave raid and and that's it. And for about the next 100 years, there's almost nothing in terms of mm. large scale military conquest. So something seems to have occurred. Mm. We also see and, that and the slaves. The, oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, we, yeah, I, we'll get to the slaves for sure. That's a really important point. But mm-hmm. a couple other brief things. We, we also see his palace at Avaris on the Nile Delta, that that was abandoned during his reign. And then we see his son, his firstborn son, kind of disappears from the historical record. And the next son in line is the one who becomes the pharaoh. But he has this special steely with an appeal to the gods to show that he he was actually the one selected by the gods to be the pharaoh. So seems to be something going on there uh, that could be connected to the death of the firstborn. Hmm. But let's, where did, let's where, talk about that, slaves. Yeah, yeah the for, slave before, rate, before, rate is interesting, too, because there are uh-huh. clearly, uh, he, Amenhotep II is clearly looking to replenish his slave population at just the time the Bible says he lost a big chunk of it with the Exodus. So it, there's a whole bunch of uh, 
puzzle pieces that fit together to support this guy as the uh, as, as the pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, Titus, I, I heard you say that scholars believe that his slave raids were exaggerated, that he went in, he said he went into Canaan and he he somehow took a whole bunch of slaves, 100,000 slaves back to Egypt or something. And most think that's right. exaggerated to save face. Why, why, would, why would he do that? Yes. Well, one reason is he it just fits his character that he's trying uh-huh. to show himself as larger than life and better than all pharaohs, which suggests that he was compensating for something, some kind of failure, some kind of turmoil during mm-hmm. his reign where he felt that he needed to push propaganda about himself so hard so that he could retain power or, or look good in the eyes of the people and the gods. But when he makes this claim of a hundred thousand slaves that he brings back from Canaan, if we compare that to other lists of similar actions by Pharaohs, the next highest number is about 5,900. So it's, it's obviously way bigger than anything else seen in Egyptian history And that's why Egyptologists would say, okay, he might have gone there and got some slaves, but he's obviously exaggerating this massively to to try to make a point or to try to save face for some kind of failure. Now, you mentioned, too, that uh, a couple minutes ago that Amenhotep's first son seems to have disappeared from the record and therefore his second son had to somehow make a divine claim to the throne. Where was this inscription found for Tutmos? Is it, is it Tutmos the fourth? Yes. His second yeah. son? Where, where was the inscription so, found where he makes this claim? It was found on a stele, which is a large inscribed monument. It's one stone in between the paws of the great Sphinx at Giza. And wow. he had a whole story constructed that he was out hunting, that he went down to the Sphinx to take a nap. And then the God of the Sphinx came to him in a dream and told him that he was going to become the next Pharaoh. And so he's making this story that the gods have chosen him. It's not because his older brother died and he just happens to be next in line. It's that this was the plan of the gods. And so that gives his claim to the throne a stronger case. Steve Meyer with a minute to go before the break. How do how do people miss this? It's on the Sphinx. It's all of these things are public evidence. One of the things though that we've discovered in looking at this and many other biblical events that have been attested uh, to by uh, extra biblical archaeological evidence is that there is a tendency for archaeologists and scholars to be very narrowly focused on an individual dig or an individual region. And so if you have that kind of narrow focus, and if in addition to that, you have an assumption that miracles can't possibly happen, and therefore the biblical narrative can't possibly be true, you tend to miss the larger pattern of events. And so what Mm. we've seen here is, it is the 30,000 foot view that helps you pull back and you see, wow, you've got evidence for the Israelites in Egypt, you've got evidence for their entrance into Canaan, and that's just really fascinating. I'm sure we'll talk about it after the break. And there's more Uh, coming. Don't go away. You're on with Frank Turek, Steve Meyer, and Titus Kennedy. Back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, 
don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. Evidence for the exodus. If you're like me, you're hearing much of this stuff for the first time. You're hearing it from Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute and also Dr. Titus Kennedy, who, by the way, teaches at Biola University. And he's got a new book coming out in June. It is called Unearthing the Bible. And once once that comes out, we're going to have uh, Dr. Kennedy back on to talk more about these archaeological discoveries. He's been all over the world verifying these discoveries. And uh, just uh, during the break, we were talking about a little bit about this, Titus. And you said uh, something about two of the most critiqued aspects of the Old Testament uh, by scholars are actually some of the best attested archaeology. What are those what are those two stories that are most uh, uh, most uh, criticized, which actually have great archaeological evidence for? Yeah, the two that that take some of the most heat from the entire Old Testament, archaeologically anyhow, are the Exodus and the conquest of Jericho. Those are usually put up as poster childs for the unhistorical biblical text. And yet those are actually two of the stories for which we have the best archaeological corroboration. There's so many <laughs> details that we can show from those narratives. So if I were someone who was critical of the historicity of the biblical text, I would choose other stories to critique rather than those two. All right. So let's, let's add another piece of evidence to the Exodus here. So far we've had four findings. The Hebrews were in uh, Egypt prior to 1446 BC. The Pharaoh's palace is finding number two that was found on the Nile. Finding number three is the Old Testament dates of the Exodus at 1446 BC. Finding number four is that Amenhotep II was the Pharaoh in 1446. Now, finding number five is a papyrus from Egypt. And I've never heard of this until you told me about it, Titus. Explain this papyrus and what it says. This, this papyrus is commonly referred to as the Ipuwer papyrus, although it's got a fancier name, like the admonitions of an Egyptian sage. But this is a papyrus for which there's only one known copy in the whole world. And it's it's been around for a while, yet scholars typically date it to an earlier period. Usually they, they put it in what's called the second intermediate period. This would kind of be like Joseph's time. But the reason that they do that is based on their presupposition that it is just sort of an allegorical poem talking about a period of Egyptian history in which there's no centralized power and things are kind of in a little bit of turmoil. And yet, if you look at the details of it, such as the linguistics, then you see all these these words and names and phrases that come into it that suggests it was composed in what's called the 18th dynasty. That's kind of the time of Moses and Joshua and so on, the, the general time of the Exodus. In fact, the author of it, Ipuwer, this name actually appears in a text from the period of, of Hatshepsut and Thutmose III, who are in power just before the Exodus. Now, I couldn't say if that's exactly the same Ipuwer, but it at least shows us that the name was in use during that period, which is more evidence suggesting 
to place its composition just before the Exodus. Uh, the, the copy that we have is from the 13th century BC. So, you know, we throw that somewhere in between 1300 and 1200 BC. So we know it's describing events before that at least. But it seems to connect really well with the Exodus story. In fact, so well that who probably the foremost scholar in the world on this papyrus who wrote his dissertation on it, published a book on it, even acknowledges that there are all these literary and thematic links between the Ipuwer papyrus and the Exodus. But he says they, there couldn't be a real connection because neither of those documents is describing an historical event. So, <laughs> so that's the presupposition there. Right. Okay. What are some of the things that, that this says that lines up with the Exodus that this papyrus says? So if you know the Exodus plagues narrative, or at least a mm -hmm. brief familiarity with it, you know some of the things like the Nile River gets turned to blood and there are all these different plagues that go on. And then there's the death of the firstborn. So all the death of people and children, the sun isn't seen. And then the slaves, the, the Israelite slaves, they're given this gold and silver at the end, right? So here are some of the things that I, I just picked out of the Ippuwer papyrus that seem to match up with this plagues narrative. First of all, it says the river is blood and there's blood throughout the land. So that's one really odd coincidence right there. But we have a lot more that suggests it's not just a single coincidence. Fields are burned, grain is gone, there's lamentation throughout the land, plague and pestilence throughout Egypt. Children of all these different classes and descriptions have died and it talks about burying uh, people all over the land of Egypt. So there's a lot of death and death of children apparently. It says the power of Ra, who was the sun god, is not seen, which is quite possibly a reference to not being able to see the sun for some period. Talks about how the kingship is overthrown. This could relate to the firstborn of the pharaoh dying, or at least showing that the pharaoh is powerless at the time. And then it also says that the slaves take gold and silver. And so we have several things that match up, which suggests that it's more than just a mere coincidence of one really odd uh, parallel. So we actually have a document written in Egypt, and this document is at least 1300 BC or so, and it has all these parallels to the Exodus, and people say there's absolutely no evidence from Egypt for the Exodus? Steve, what do you say about this? Well, it, it's clearly an Egyptian account, and it's happening so long after the fact of, or after the time to which it has been dated back to 1700 BC, that the dating that uh, dating it that far back is implausible, and it's especially implausible for the reasons that Titus cited. For one, was talking about the kingship being overthrown. Well, it was they wanted the scholars have wanted to date it back to a time when there wasn't a centralized authority, so that doesn't make sense. And yet, you have all these these multiple points of agreement that suggest that this is actually an, an Egyptian account of the Exodus event at some time, probably after the fact, not certainly not before it. And uh, I, I, I worked on a, uh, consulted on a documentary on the history of the Exodus several years ago. We had, we called the museum where this was held and they, and they said, oh, well, if you're calling about this because you think it has something to do with the, with the Exodus, it, it, it can't because it was written at the wrong time. But mm -hmm. this is another example of 
the way in which scholars is presuppositions about the the timing of the event. Uh, in fact, these guys told us it was written in 1300 BC, and the Exodus happened in 1200, so it must have happened before the Exodus, which mm. again shows that they just were presupposing the wrong window of time in which mm-hmm. to be looking for evidence. And if you look mm-hmm. at the right time, the the time the Bible itself specifies, what we're finding is this extensive pattern in which there are multiple points of agreement between the extra biblical record both with documentary history and archaeology and, and the biblical text. Amazing. All right, so finding number six now, and this is your specialty, Titus. You have a Ph.D. in this. The excavated cities in Cana, or what we now know as Israel, show an influx of people around 1400 and after. Can you give us some evidence for that? Yeah, so there's two things that we could look at with this. Around 1400 B.C., we see destruction and upheaval and war in the land. And then we also see a demographic shift on either side of 1400 BC. Now, archaeologically, that that year is the end of one period and the beginning of another. And so when we divide up into these periods, what we see is there was a trend of population growth in Canaan up to about that point. And then there was a, a big drop. And after that, a lot of new settlements popped up and some of the settlements that had been abandoned around 1400 BC, they start to get resettled and then there's a slow population growth. So what that suggests just from looking at the demographics is that there was some major event in Canaan around 1400 BC that caused the population drop and then new settlements. It seems like a new people comes into the land to build these settlements and we can make that by we can infer that by seeing that the architecture that appears in this uh, post-1400 BC period, it's something different. So there's a, there's a new people and scholars, they're generally going to say, yeah, this is the emergence of the Israelites. So when Joshua came into the land around 1400 BC, you see that in the archaeology that there was burn layers, there was some, there was a conquest. In fact, you've actually excavated some of these sites. What sites have have you excavated, uh, Titus? Relating to the conquest specifically, I've, I've excavated at Hatzor and I, mm-hmm. and we could we could say that Jericho and Hatzor and I, these all have evidence of destruction and abandonment about 1400 BC, fitting with that Joshua conquest narrative. And then Shechem, that we know was not conquered by the Israelites. It was obtained peacefully. We see that in the archaeological record. But then there's this corpus of documents called the Amarna letters, which not only talk about people coming into the land, they call them the Habiru or the Apiru, and fighting all these different Canaanite cities and the Canaanite kings asking the Egyptians for help but never getting it. So there's a there's war, there's documentary evidence of a war and takeover. But also these letters contain a couple messages which says that the king of Shechem gave his land to the Habiru. So there was some kind of peaceful transaction which explains what we see happening in Joshua at Shechem. This is incredible. And when you, when you piece view, all Frank, this together. It, Go ahead, yeah. Steve. Well, Go it's ahead. just the, the specificity of this is breathtaking because there was for mm-hmm. a long time controversy among scholars about whether the Hopi Ru or the Hobby Ru referred to the Hebrew or not. 
but uh, when you get into the, the, the details of these Amarna letters uh, and find that the, 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 there are specific descriptions of how each city fell, and in particular, this description, description of Shechem, which is, which is anomalous. It's, there was a peaceful transfer of power, according to the Joshua account. They gave the keys to this, the king of Shechem gave the keys of the city to Joshua. And then you have the same a, a, a parallel description in the Amarna tablets of the exact same event. It wasn't destroyed. It wasn't conquered. It was handed over peacefully. And so that allows you, that specificity of description allows you to, to identify the, the Israelites as equivalent to the Habiru or the Hapiru, and which means that then the whole Amarna tablet, so the whole corpus of the Amarna tablet, is actually um, a, an extensive piece of corroborating evidence for the entrance into Canaan. Well, there's more evidence that the Exodus had to be prior to 1200 B.C., and we're going to talk about it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Dr. Stephen Meyer and Dr. Titus Kennedy. They're my guests today. I'm Frank Turek, and Dr. Kennedy teaches at Biola. He is a Ph.D. in archaeology, and you all know Dr. Steve Meyer, Ph.D., from Cambridge University. And we're going to go through a couple more findings when we come back, so don't go way back in two. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation? 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Evidence for the Exodus with my guests, Dr. Titus Kennedy and Dr. Stephen Meyer. Before we get back to them, I want to mention I'll be in Spring, Texas this weekend at a church down there that's just north of Houston, Texas. And you can go to our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it. And uh, you will see the Frank Turek calendar there right under events. I'm going to be doing the morning services and then uh, in the evening, we'll continue at North Central Church in Spring, Texas at 5 p.m. We will go through. Um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And don't forget, spring forward this weekend. So that'll be extra early for the uh, first service. And then next week, I'll be out at uh, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, one of my favorite churches with the great Jack Hibbs, doing all the services there on March 15th. Check our website for more. All right, let's go back. We got more findings to discover with regard to the Exodus. Finding number seven, and an and amazing Stella, which shows that the Hebrews had to be in the land quite early. Why don't you take that one, Titus? What is the Stella that has been discovered? That's the Merneptah stele. Sometimes it's called the Israel stele, and, and it was mm -hmm. actually discovered way back in 1896 by this mm -hmm. famous early British archaeology named Flinders Petrie. And it was found in the mortuary temple of Pharaoh Merneptah. And the information on this, this inscription and what we know about Merneptah's reign puts the date of it around 1210 BC. And part of this stele, which is commemorating his victories, discusses how he went into Canaan and he conquered these three cities, which he lists in the north the central area and the south. And then it says that he laid waste to Israel and their seed is no more. And that's the only group of people that he specifies 
in Canaan, which tells us that they were the dominant people in Canaan by 1210 BC, the, the late 13th century BC, when he was in there, because the Egyptians are only going to mention their their greatest hits, basically, whoever <laughs> was the most formidable. And that then tells us that not only were the Israelites in Canaan by the late 13th century BC, but they were already the most powerful group of people there, which shows us they had been there for a while. They had already fought, conquered, settled, established themselves. And this is telling us then that the conquest and the exodus happened quite a bit earlier than the late 13th century BC. Hmm. Another piece of evidence that is often overlooked, by the way, the reason I call it a Stella is that's because my friend Ellie Shukron, the archaeologist who discovered the Pool Asylum, he calls it a Stella, but that's maybe just his accent. Steely no, is, I guess, the right way to say it, That's one of the accepted... Right? That's one of the is accepted it? ways. It's it's an older way uh -huh. to say it, but yeah, it comes from a Greek word. So, of course, there's going to be, be a couple way. different options. Yeah. Either right, way is fine, Dr. Turek. That's right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, finding number eight is one of the most incredible archaeological discoveries, I think, in history uh, with related uh, related to the Bible. And Steve, you originally told me about this, and Titus himself went and verified it. Steve, why don't you start it, and then Titus will pick it up. Yeah, you bet. When we were working on this uh, True You series, and our uh, third lecture in that series was, or second lecture, was the uh, evidence for the Exodus. And mm -hmm. um, so uh, Titus came in one day to the office and said, hey, there's been a really, I found a, a mention of a potentially very significant finding and it was in a fairly obscure old uh, theology journal, and it described a group of people called the Tashasu Yahweh, the nomads of Yahweh, and it described their movement through the, the provinces of Moab and Edom, and it was on an inscription from a pharaoh who was alive about the time of the conquest, the biblical conquest or entrance into Canaan, about or just before it, around 1410, 1420 BC, something like that. So a couple of years ago, Titus made an expedition to see if he could verify the existence of this inscription, and uh, I'll hand it off to him. Take it away, Titus. One, one of the do? reasons that this finding is so significant is because Steve had mentioned the the A to B argument. There's evidence that there were Hebrews in Egypt prior to the Exodus, and then we have the Israelites showing up in Canaan. But what, what about that in-between time, the wandering? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's virtually no archaeological traces for nomadic groups in the Bronze Age. It's just not something that you can find. And so one could say, where were they? There's no evidence for the wandering period, right? You know, we don't, we don't mm -hmm. have anything with hard archaeological proof. And yet this is something that fills in the gap. So in Northern Sudan, which was Southern Egypt in ancient times, there was a temple built for the Pharaoh Amenhotep III. And it was constructed uh, around 1400 BC or, or just, for, just before that. And this inscription was put on there right at that time. And the inscription is part of a list which shows all these places and people that the Pharaoh supposedly had power over. He had dominated them. He had subdued them, etc. cetera. Uh, probably hadn't conquered them because there's no military campaigns 
that we know of, but he's, he's just sort of copying the traditions of his previous pharaohs. And on one of the, the list sections, which is actually uh, both on a pillar and on a wall, there's, there are groups of nomads listed. And these nomads are specified according to some other qualifier. And in one case, they seem to all be connected to a god that they worship. And one of these nomad people groups is called the nomads of Yahweh. That is, they are nomads who worship Yahweh. So this is our earliest inscription that's ever been found mentioning Yahweh. And it's in association with a group of nomads who are contextually placed around the area of Edom and Moab, possibly Canaan. So this is uh, present day kind of northern Sinai, southern Israel or uh, Jordan just across mm -hmm. the river. Exactly where the Israelites were at the end of the wandering period. And it's on an Egyptian temple on a list of a pharaoh. So that tells us the, the, the Egyptians and the pharaoh himself knew about these people. And it really could only be talking about the Israelites because they're the only people in ancient times that ever worshipped Yahweh or had an association with him. And so this really fills in the gap for us and tells us the Egyptians knew about the wandering Israelites and the name Yahweh. And you actually and they, took and they a trip yourself to, to, to yeah. Sudan, which is, which is not a friendly place, is it? Yeah, <laughs> I went there because there this, this had never been fully published. There were a few offhand references to it in uh, a couple of books, in a couple of articles, and then the original excavation point uh, report, it mentions it, but there's no photograph of it. There's, there's like a couple of sentences. And so I wanted to go and document this and do a full publication of the inscription. And there are actually, there's some errors in the original report uh, one, on one of the hieroglyphs. So I went, I went there took quite a while just to fly to Khartoum. And then it was a day and a half of driving from Khartoum mm -hmm. to get up to this temple in the middle of nowhere on the West bank of the Nile river. And, and then, yeah, I photographed and documented it and published this article. And now hopefully uh, people have more access to the actual photographs of it and know what it says, why it says that and why it's significant. Well, this is going to be in your new book, Unearthing the Bible, which comes out in June, maybe before, and we'll have you back on to talk about that. But Steve, you were going to say something. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Well, uh, two things. One, uh, Titus told me he'd get security for this trip, but it turned out it was just a couple of Italian guys who helped him with passport control. So he's sort of the real <laughs> deal as far as the Christian Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. But secondly, I wanted to comment on the, uh, another aspect of the significance of this find, because you know the dominant way of thinking about the Bible among archaeologists or people in ancient Near Eastern studies, there's a, a school of thought called biblical minimalism, the idea mm. that the Bible has very minimal purchase or relevance to actual historical events. And the view of the biblical minimalist is that the Exodus never occurred, and that uh, the Israelites didn't exist as a people group until uh, much later, that they congealed out of the central uh, Canaanite hill country maybe around 900 B.C., maybe a bit earlier, maybe around 1200 B.C., but they certainly didn't come from Egypt. But if that's the case, then why is the earliest mention of the Hebrew God on an Egyptian monument? Clearly mm -hmm. the Egyptians knew about this people. They knew about their patterns of worship. They knew who they worshipped. 
and why were the Israelites placed in, not in Canaan, but in uh, Moab and Edom, east of the Jordan, just prior to their uh, alleged entrance into the, into the Promised Land, according to the Bible. This placed them exactly at the right place, at the right time. It's, an, it's a stunning piece of very specific corroboration of the biblical narrative that fits into a larger pattern that suggests that the whole of the Exodus narrative occurred from Egypt to Canaan, and we can even again track them on the way into uh, on the way from point A to point B in uh, in Moab and Edom just prior to the to the entrance into into Canaan. So I just want everyone uh, to understand the, the gravity of this. I'm just going to say the gravity of this, Steve, is amazing. Yeah. It's the oldest Yahweh inscription in the world that's been discovered, and you helped verify it there, Titus, Titus Kennedy, Doctor Titus Kennedy. And it's going to be in your new book coming out. And it's in Egypt. Well, now Sudan, but it used to be Egypt. This is just amazing. Now, we're, we're out of time here in this segment. We can't get to all the findings. There's a couple more, but we'll cover it in the next uh, broadcast. Um, and uh, Steve, you're going to be where coming up? But where, where can people see you? I'll be speaking at our Philadelphia Science and Faith Conference on April 4th and 5th. I'll be speaking about my new book on the return of the God hypothesis, which is the prior question in this uh, cumulative case for biblical Christianity that uh, Titus and I worked on together uh, that I used to call Reasons for Faith. But the first reason is that there's evidence for God's existence that comes from science, and I'll be talking about that in And Titus, uh, we're going to have you back on here shortly when your book comes out, and then we'll give more information as to your new website and where people can see you. I just want to thank you guys for being on the show. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. That's Titus Kennedy of Biola University and Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute. We're going to have them back on. This is fascinating material. I'll see you next week. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.